1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today we return to our study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a letter that he wrote in response to a letter they had sent him. From what he writes in this letter, we can reconstruct in part what they wrote to him and what was going on in the Corinthian congregation. And as we have seen, the situation in the Corinthian congregation was a mess. One could even call it bizarre. I thought since it's been several weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians that we would go over and review a bit, but particularly to help us as we come into chapter 15. The Corinthians were convinced that they knew more, they knew better than Paul, which is seen in a number of areas. They identify themselves as belonging to Peter, to Apollos, and others. But in reality, what they mean is that they're not listening to Paul anymore. They see themselves as spiritual, and though they don't say so directly, the implication is they don't think that Paul is. They see themselves as having arrived. In chapter 4, Paul says, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, already you have become kings and that without us. And they don't see Paul as matching their position. As Paul says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are, dis- you are honored, but we are dishonored. If this was the only problem that the Corinthians had in my book, they would be in serious error. Uh, because one might ask, how could they for a moment imagine that they knew more than Paul? But what follows confirms, in fact, that they are in error. There is a member of the congregation we see in chapter 5 who is having sexual relations with his stepmother. And the congregation is rather pleased about the whole business because it demonstrates that they are new creatures in Christ, that they are not bound by social conventions. In chapter 6, several members have gone to court, to public court. Apparently one member has cheated another member out of something, money perhaps, and the person who was cheated has taken the other one to court. Also in chapter 6, some of the men of the church are going to prostitutes. And the reason is that they view the body as unimportant. As they say, food for the body and the stomach, I'm sorry, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. So the body doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. In chapter 7, the Corinthians have taken on a different view of sexuality, which has resulted in a contradiction. As they believe that they have arrived, they are like angels, there's no place for sexuality in their lives. So some of them, apparently have embraced asceticism. We don't do that anymore. They have been telling married couples not to have sexual relations. They've been telling widows and widowers not to remarry. Those who are married to unbelievers, they are encouraging them to leave them. And to those who are engaged, to break their engagements. The contradiction is that this church, which has embraced sexual asceticism, glories in the fact that one of its members is having sexual relations with his stepmother, and that men in the church are going to prostitutes. It should have been a red flag to them that there was something seriously wrong about their new theology. There were some serious flaws in it. The Corinthians had embraced an absolute freedom based on knowledge. We know that we all possess knowledge. We find in chapter 8, everything is permissible. As Paul tries to point out, this results in love having no place whatsoever in their theology and in their thinking. This freedom, Paul deals with in a specific area, is they now go to public or to pagan temples and participate in worship. 
That is, they eat meat that is offered to idols after they've been a part of Christian worship. That is, after they go to church and have the Lord's Supper with God's people, they then in turn go over to a pagan temple, participate in that worship so that they can eat at the tables there. Some are able to do this because, after all, they know an idol is nothing. It's harmless. What's the big deal? We know it's a false god. We're just here to get a good steak. You know, what are you so worried about? Others do not, however. They, they don't get this. Uh, Paul says that their consciences are weak and they are destroyed, which I think means that they leave the Christian faith and go back to their old pagan way of life. We see that their public worship is marked by disorder in a number of areas. We have women participating in worship, which is fine with Paul, but they do so dressed as men. Uh, We have the well-to-do who are isolating those who have nothing, sort of putting the poor people at the kiddies table outside and not allowing them to share, and then having the Lord's Supper after all of that. There are those who see themselves as spiritual, as sort of an elite Um, And they see the spirituality as evidenced by the fact that they speak in tongues. And so when we get to chapter 14, we see that public worship is just a disaster. I mean, Paul doesn't mention this, but he's mentioned in chapter 11. You have women who are dressed like men. You have different people speaking in tongues at the same time. You have different people prophesying at the same time. As Paul said, you know, if an unbeliever comes in, he'll think you guys are crazy. Paul argues that there needs to be order, there needs to be a sense of discipline in public worship. If one person is speaking, then everybody else needs to be quiet. And then that that really problematic verse uh, that everyone has trouble with, there are specific women in the congregation who are disrupting public worship by asking questions out loud during the service and perhaps even across the congregation. And Paul says you need to hold your questions, wait till you get home, And then you ask your husband. Now, the question that arises, or should arise at least, is how did the Corinthians get so messed up? I mean, one would think if the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half with us and then he left, that within a short period of time, we would not be having these problems that the Corinthians were having. How did they get so messed up so quickly? Well, we've heard hints of this in our studies. It is seen in the mention of angels which we don't find in Paul's other writings. And when he does mention it here, it doesn't always, at least to us, seem to make sense. Um, In chapter 4, he talks about the apostles being a spectacle. You know, the Corinthians are hot, you know, and the the apostles aren't. And he says, you know, we're a spectacle. We're a joke. You know, we're at the end of the procession. And he says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe and to angels as well as men. That's just like... Okay, if you say the whole world, I guess that includes angels, but why mention angels? And then in chapter 6, when he talks about going to court, he's like, can't you guys take care of this? He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? In chapter 11, verse 10, about women dressing as men and not wearing coverings, uh, Paul says that they are to wear coverings for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. And I I told you when we went through that, I have no idea what Paul means, but he mentions angels for the third time. And then the fourth time, the one that we're all familiar with in chapter 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. 
All of this sort of allows us to reconstruct a scenario in which the Corinthians think they are like the angels now. Because Paul says, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, you have become kings and that without us. Because Jesus said that after the resurrection, we will be like the angels. We will not have marriage and we will be like the angels. The Corinthians think they are like the angels right now. And as a result, they reject social norms, they reject sexuality, they reject the concept of gender, and there is an infatuation with speaking in tongues, speaking the language of the angels. How did they get to this point? Well, I believe it's found here in chapter 15. It is their rejection of the resurrection. Because in verse number 12, Paul asked, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And apparently many people in the Corinthian church are saying there is no resurrection for us. Um, verse number 35 in this chapter, uh, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? The Corinthians cannot get their minds around the concept of resurrection and therefore they have rejected it. In the ancient world, only the Hebrews held to a form of resurrection. The Greeks did not. And, and therefore, when Paul preached the resurrection, as we will see, they believed that. But because of their culture, they sort of went off on a tangent and it resulted in all these various errors. Paul's argument is in three parts. We will only look at the first part today. In the first 11 verses, he will reestablish the common ground between himself and the Corinthians. That is, what he preached and what they believe are the same, and that is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Then, what the Lord willing, next week we will look at, he points out the contradiction of their position. Because they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but that they won't be. And, and Paul says, well, this is impossible. Uh, Paul says, if you're right, then... If there is no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised and we've all wasted our time together. If Christ was raised, then there are certain implications from that. But then he goes back to the whole contradiction. And, and here we find a very strange thing. It's the only place that's mentioned in the Bible. Apparently the Corinthians were being baptized for the dead. A practice we now find in the Mormon church today. But they were actually, you know, my, my, my dad and, you know, my relatives, my friends, they've already passed on, but I want to be baptized on their behalf. And Paul's like, well, why are you doing that if there's no resurrection? And then in the last part, verses 35 to 58, Paul tackles the, the how of how the dead are raised. Not in terms of the power that will make this happen, but in terms of the form the resurrection will take. Paul's position is this. It is the biblical position that resurrection is physical. It is bodily. The body will be resurrected. It is in the light of this last section, I think, that we come to understand why they rejected the physicality of the, of the resurrection. Or we understand that they did. Why and how is something that we have to work on. But in reading this letter, I think we get hints of it. It had to do with what it meant to be spiritual and their view of what it meant to be spiritual, which was quite radically different than Paul's. Paul's view of spirituality was if you are a child of God, you have the spirit of God, you are spiritual, you have the spirit. 
For the Greeks, they're thinking, and unfortunately our thinking I think is closer to theirs, is you have a body and you have a spirit. And the body is sort of the vehicle for the spirit. And so the body's not really that important. It is the spirit that is important. And, and the spirit, in a sense, needs to sort of break through uh, the chrysalis of your body. And so they believe that once they had become Christians, the body is nothing. They are like the angels. They can speak the language of the angels. They have come into a new type of existence altogether. Um, this fits in with their culture and with the philosophy uh, of the Greeks. Uh, Socrates saw that the highest goal a person could have was to get rid of the body, to become pure mind, to become pure spirit. And it seems that the Corinthians have gone down this path. So we would say that the Corinthians have been affected, they have been infected by their culture, and they have changed the gospel to accommodate these differences with their culture. Unless we think badly of the Corinthians, I would argue that every generation of the church has faced these pressures. And I would argue, uh, and I will at the end of the sermon, that the American church has been affected and infected by our culture, perhaps far more than we realize. Today we look at the basis for a belief in the resurrection. It's in the first 11 verses here of chapter 15. And follow along if you would as I read. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. On the face of it, and I think people today have made this mistake, it seems that Paul is trying to prove the historicity of the resurrection. He lists the various appearances that Jesus made. Um, that he appeared to Peter and then to the disciples, and then he lists four others. And as we, as we begin this passage, understand, Paul's not trying to prove anything. He's simply repeating something that he preached and that the Corinthians believed. This is the common ground that they have. That they believe that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, and that he appeared to people after his resurrection. By the way, Paul will end the section with the way he begins it with this sense of this is what was preached, this is the gospel that was preached, and this is what you believed. Okay. So again, he's not trying to prove a point. Verses 1 and 2. These open this argument, and I, if you look at it, verses 1 and 2 are basically repetition. Uh, um, it comes down to this. The gospel was preached to them by Paul. 
They received the gospel. They believed it. They took their stand on the gospel. They said, we are Christians. We are followers of this Christ, this one who was raised from the dead. Paul wants them to hold firmly to this because otherwise they will fall away from the faith and their believing would be in vain. But here at the outset, I think Paul makes another point. He preached the gospel to them. They believed the gospel that Paul preached to them. They had their beginnings as Christians as a result of what Paul had done. Paul, whom they have now rejected on some level, whom they believe that they have surpassed in understanding, he is the one who brought the gospel to them. In chapter 4, Paul reminded them that he was their father in the faith. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, I was the guy who first preached the gospel to you. But the Corinthians think that they've gone beyond him. Now, it is not uncommon, by the way, for children to reach a point when they think they know more than their parents. And in reality, they may, at a certain point in their lives, know more than their parents. But there needs to be a remembering of the beginning, of the beginnings of life. We did not come into the world on our own. And therefore, God tells us in the commandments, honor your father and mother. He doesn't say your father and mother will always know more than you. He doesn't say you will always be less in understanding than your parents. No, it is a reminder of how we come into the world. We come into the world through our parents, therefore they are to be honored. And Paul is the one who preached the gospel to the Corinthians. And the gospel he preached to them is the gospel that they have taken their stand on. They need to be reminded of the beginnings and the foundations on which they have taken their stand. And by the way, this goes back, and remember the chapter divisions are artificial, this goes back several verses in chapter 14 as he concludes his, his argument about the chaos in worship. He said, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. In other words, go back to the beginning. Go back to first things. And you will know that what I am telling you is true. Verses 3 through 5. Paul now reminds them of what he was taught and what he in turn taught to them. By the way, does the phrasing of verse number 3 sound familiar to you? For what I received, I pass on to you. Does that sound familiar? In chapter 11, when he recalls the tradition of the Lord's Supper, uh, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. So there is this sense of tradition that Paul was taught this, and then he taught it to the Corinthians. And these truths are of first importance. They are basic. They are fundamental. They are foundational. This is the bare bones of the gospel upon which everything else is built. If you lose the four things that Paul is talking about here, then you basically do not have the Christian gospel. He gives us four statements which are almost in the form of a creed, and many people believe this is one of the earliest creeds we find in the church. Each is introduced by that. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. Let's look at these quickly, each one. That Christ died for our sins. This is the fundamental, this is the primary Christian tenet of our faith. Because it presupposes so many other realities. First of all, that Jesus came into the world. 
that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that his death had a purpose, he came to die for others. Um, If you remember in the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. His death was atonement. It was payment on behalf of others. And the reason was, the reason that he had to die was because of our sins, which means we are alienated from God because of rebellion and sinfulness. We have sinned. We are sinners. So Christ comes into the world and dies for our sins. According to the scriptures, this is what the whole Old Testament points to from the sacrificial system. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to kill animals and got skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. That's the first sacrifice. From the very beginning, it all points to the fact that Christ had to come into the world to die for our sins. And I think if we would stop right there, we would have a lot to think and meditate on for the rest of this week. Christ died for our sins. I find it strange that most people in church would sort of agree, yes, Christ died. That our sins is the, the, the part they have a problem with. But this is fundamental to the gospel. Otherwise, why would Christ die? We would have no need of him to die unless we were sinners. Secondly, that he was buried. And the burial, as I pointed out before, functioned to verify the fact that he was dead. I've told you before that the work of Christ was finished on the cross. When Christ said, it is finished, that was it. If God had wanted, he could have taken Christ off the cross at that moment, and the effect would have been the same, well, in terms of our salvation. But then people might have said, well, he didn't really die. You know, that he, maybe he passed out, or he was in a coma, or he was unconscious. No, he had to be put into the ground, he was buried, and he was there. Uh, By the way, there are still people today who insist that he didn't die, that he was there, and and the coldness of the tomb sort of resuscitated him. He sort of got it back together and and then walked out of the tomb. Um, I guess there's no pleasing some people. But Christ was buried so that we know that the first statement is true. Christ died. He was buried. Something else should, and it, it may seem too obvious, Christ's death was physical. It was bodily. His body died. His body was buried. This is important because the third thing is that on the third day, he was raised. His body was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. And the grammar indicates that somebody else raised Jesus from the dead. And that is the way that we find in scripture. God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. And that Jesus is still alive today. And the fourth thing is that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This is the beginning of the confirmation of the previous statement that Jesus was raised from the dead. It points to a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, an objective reality. That is, it wasn't some subjective experience. It wasn't some spirit floating around. Peter and the twelve saw the resurrected Christ. At this point, it would seem, most scholars agree, that the creed ends. But now Paul, in verses 6 through 8, tacks on some other witnesses to the resurrection. Four more incidents uh, that sort of verify that Jesus was raised from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time. By the way, Paul says most of them are still alive. Some have died. They've fallen asleep. But 
they're still alive. The witnesses are still there. He appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles, not individual appearances, but to all of them at once. And then he appeared to Paul. Interestingly enough, with, with the exception of the last one where he appeared to Paul, the other three are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, but Paul mentions them to emphasize the truthfulness of the resurrection. The Corinthians could go and interview these witnesses if they wanted. But that's not the problem. It's not that the Corinthians don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. They just don't think it will happen for them. These verses, I think, also serve to put Paul in the apostolic tradition. They appeared to Peter, to the Twelve, to the Five Hundred, to James, to all the apostles. And then Paul tacks himself on there at the end as someone to whom Jesus had appeared. In verses 9 through 11, the last part of this passage, uh, he says that uh, Jesus appeared to him, to me also, as to one abnormally born. Uh, two questions immediately come up in my mind. When did Jesus appear to Paul? Um, and what does it mean to be abnormally born? Many people think that Paul's referring to the Damascus Road. That uh, when Paul was going to Damascus, he was persecuting the church, he was accosted by Jesus and that he saw the resurrected Christ then. That may be, but I think that Paul saw the resurrected Christ on other occasions, occasions which he has shared with the Corinthians in his preaching. So they know what he's talking about. We don't, but he had already told the Corinthians, yes, I saw Jesus um, at other times. Um, we will see it. We've already uh, seen it. Uh, in, our, in the book of Acts, where the Lord Jesus will appear to Paul and will stand by him and say, Paul, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Before the ship was wrecked, the last shipwreck at Malta, the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, listen, no one will be lost. So Jesus had appeared to Paul, not simply on the Damascus Road, but at other times. Well, let's get to the big question. What does it mean to be abnormally born? Many think that Paul is saying that his experience is outside the norm. That you have this, this pattern that Jesus appears to those to whom, well, people who already knew him. You know, people had spent time with him. So that when he shows up, they're like, oh, well, it's Jesus, because they recognize him. As best we know, Paul never saw Jesus. He only sees him after the resurrection. And so his experience is somewhat abnormal. That, in a sense, outside the box of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, we have these appearances to Paul. But Paul's choice of vocabulary is interesting. The word he uses for abnormally born in Greek is ektroma, which refers to any type of premature birth, abortion, stillbirth, or miscarriage. And in Paul's time, the word came to be used figuratively as to refer to something freakish, something horrible or freakish. Paul also does something. He adds the article. So he is saying that he is the one who is the abnormally born, the abortion, the freakish one. Not simply, oh, yeah, it's freakish, but the freakish person. It leads credence, by the way, to the theory that this is something that the Corinthians used to refer to Paul. Uh, if you know uh, Latin at all, 
Um, Paul's name, Paulus, is uh, also means small. And so, probably a small man, and now they've added to it Actroma, a freakish, this freakish small guy, Paul, who preached the gospel to us. I think this explains why in verses 9 and 10, Paul sort of digresses away from the tradition to talk about the fact that he is, in fact, yes, he is the least of the apostles. Um, he doesn't even deserve to be called an apostle. Um, the Corinthians, I think, would agree with this. Yeah, yeah Paul, we're not, we're not really sure that you are an apostle. Um, Paul's reason is because he persecuted the church. Their reason is because you're a weak guy, you're a small guy, and you're not as spiritual as we are. So how can you be an apostle? And we haven't been Christians that long, and we've already surpassed you. But Paul wants to he is an apostle. Okay, he may be the least of the apostles, and Jesus may have appeared to him out of the ordinary. He may be a freakish apostle, if you wish, but he is an apostle, one who is called by God. It points out something very powerful in this passage, that he was an apostle only by the grace of God. That's the only way anybody was an apostle. But he makes a powerful statement, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And as an apostle, what did he do? He preached the same gospel that the other guys did, the other apostles. And this was the gospel that the Corinthians believed. You may remember in the first chapter that some of them said, oh, I belong to Peter, I belong to Apollos. Well, for the sake of argument, let's go with that. What did Peter preach? What did Apollos preach? It's the very same thing that Paul preached. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, and that he appeared to people after his resurrection. This is the gospel. And so as Paul begins to make a case for the resurrection, he begins not where they differ, but where they are in agreement. That is, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Lord willing, we will pick this up next week and look at how he continues to deal with this serious flaw in the Corinthian theology. But in conclusion, several things to consider. This is a powerful passage on the resurrection, and I've preached from it a number of times, uh, usually at Easter, when we think of the resurrection of Jesus. But we need to understand that Paul did not write verses 1 through 11 to convince the Corinthians of the resurrection of Jesus. They already believed. There are many who try to use this passage to convince unbelievers. Listen, I know you're not a Christian, but here, let, let me prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. So it, it wasn't simply a hallucination. Some might say mass hysteria. but um, And then he appeared to James, his half-brother, and then to all the apostles. And finally he appeared to Paul. So there. That should prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, this is not something that can be proved. And we talked about this in Sunday school. This requires the work of the Spirit. I've told you this story before, but I'll, I'll tell you again. Some years ago when I was attending LACC, right over there, a Christian speaker was brought in by a Christian group, and he spoke on the historicity of the resurrection. And he made a very cogent, a very logical argument to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, based on not the scriptures, but on historical evidence. Well, not everyone was sympathetic. Uh, there were several people who were quite hostile. And during the question and answer session afterwards, 
there was someone who was obviously antagonistic. I mean, you could just sort of feel the antagonism radiating from this man. And he made the statement that even if you could prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, historically, that didn't mean that he was the Son of God. And I felt like standing up and saying, you're exactly right. Because to get up and make this historical argument to say that Jesus rose from the dead, okay. And that doesn't mean that he is the Son of God. And to understand that he is the Son of God, I think, is only something that comes by the Spirit of God. This is not something we can get on our own. It requires the Spirit of God to open our hearts and our minds for us to understand. Faith is not a matter of proofs. Now, there are plenty of proofs, by the way. There's plenty of evidence. But I think it's a case of once one has entered into faith, then one understands the proofs. Proofs don't push you into faith. They come after the fact. And that's why Augustine said one must believe in order to know. Uh, we're the opposite. We say, you tell me so I know, and then I'll, no, I'll decide whether I want to believe or not. And I think that's something we really need to work through. And this passage, I think, sort of should guide us in that direction. And then secondly, um, we have seen how the, the Greek culture really infected the Corinthian view of the gospel. How has it infected the church in our generation? Well, let me ask you, first of all, has our culture infected the church? I think we would all agree that it has. And so let's 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 work from that. Um, what are we vulnerable to in this culture? What is it in our culture that has the potential to pull us away from what the gospel is teaching? I think it is found in this passage as well. It is the area of weakness. I think we are. As Americans, we are individualistic. We are self-reliant. We are self-confident. We feel like we can we can manage things. And if we get into trouble, you know, then then we'll pray. But otherwise, we're okay. And the idea of reliance upon God, moment by moment, I think is something that we have lost. Earlier in the service, we sang the hymn "Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah." I don't know if you noticed the lines. I am weak but thou art mighty. And I wonder if we really have embraced that. Or if instead, the culture has pulled us away from that and we have the sense that, yeah, I'm okay. I, I can take care of this. I can deal with this. Now, if it gets really bad, it's nice to know there's always somebody I can call on. Uh, but otherwise, I've, I've got it covered. And I think what we find in the church is a denial of weakness, but almost an epidemic of weakness seen in other areas. Uh, we received a letter a couple weeks ago from Ken Myers from Mars Hill, and he made the comment that in the evangelical church today, the rate of divorce is equal to that of the culture. The rate of eating disorders is equal to that of the culture. Now, one could say, well, yeah, because we're human. I think it's because we think we're strong enough to handle ourselves. And the reality is we're not. And weakness has come into the church. Not the weakness 
as, as Paul describes it, of I rely on God. But a weakness in, in so many areas in our, in our families and marriages uh, and the way we do things. There must be many other areas, but this is the one that comes to mind, and I think we really need to take it to heart. To, th- to remember that, you know, if these people could get off track after having been with the Apostle Paul for a year and a half, and that if they could get off track so quickly and so badly, the potential is with us as well. And may God preserve us and keep us on the right path. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that as with every generation, we have blind spots, we have weaknesses, we have areas in which our culture has really affected us and infected us. And I pray that by your grace, we would examine not only our own lives, but the life of the church. Study your word and and get back on track as we should. We don't want to be weak. In our culture, that's a bad thing. But we've called, we've been called to acknowledge our weakness and to rely on you. I thank you for this passage, for how Paul confirms and affirms with the Corinthians the gospel, that which he preached and that which they believed. And I ask that in your grace next week as we return to this, uh, have a better understanding as Paul seeks to open this up to the Corinthians. I thank you that you brought us here today. We ask for safety as we leave this place, and particularly for Danny and Lonnie as they travel down to San Diego. May your grace and your spirit go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness, not having a light of our own, but reflecting your light and your love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.